Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hey, Dan. Hi, Dan. Dan, this is Diana from Minneapolis. Hey, Dan. What's up, Dan? Hi, Dan. Really love the podcast. I listen to your podcast almost every day. I'm going from Switzerland. Going from Singapore. Absolutely love the podcast. Love your podcast and everything you're doing. My name is John. I live in Florida. First from Philadelphia here. I'm an attorney and I just recently started meditating because of it. Hey, this is Shannon from South Carolina. Thank you so much. You guys are great. I tell my students all the time, get Dan's book and listen to Dan's podcast. Hey, Dan. My name's Nikita. Hi, Dan. My name's Brian. I'm from Columbus, Ohio. My name is John, and I live in Hawaii. I'm a big fan of 10% Happier. Thank you so much for all that you do. Dan, thank you so much for uh, taking calls. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. This is an experiment. Um, I have no idea how this is going to go. It could completely go pear-shaped. If it does fail, uh, I know exactly who I'm going to blame. Two names for you, Josh Cohen and Lauren Efron. They're the producers of the show. This whole thing is their idea, so um, just jot those down, and if this whole thing sucks, it, just, you send them a note. The idea that they cooked up was uh, we wanted to do some special podcasts um, in conjunction with the release of this new book, that's coming out that I wrote along with two co-authors. The book is called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, and it's all about uh, my attempt to do what I kind of failed to do in my first book. Uh, my first book, 10% Happier, I, I wrote my personal story of how I became a meditator, and I, I assumed naively that anybody who read it would probably start meditating because I thought I laid out the, the case in a somewhat compelling fashion, but I've realized in this four years since it came out that I was I was wrong about that, that starting a meditation habit, like starting any habit, is uh, is really hard. And so I've written this new book called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics with some co-authors, including Jeff Warren, who's an amazing meditation teacher, was featured on the podcast uh, two weeks ago. And uh, our goal in the – we took this road, cross-country road trip in January of 2017 and uh, met all these people who want to meditate but aren't, and we helped them get over the hump. And so the goal of the book is to tell you the story of this gonzo road trip that we went on and also to help you uh, get over whatever obstacles you face to starting a habit and also also to teach you how to do the thing. Anyway, so that book uh, is out on December 26th in time for a new year, new you. And and back to my producers, they came up with this idea that maybe a fun way to do a special show around the release of the book would be to create a phone number. Uh, just we created a phone number. I posted it on, on social media and said, you can call this number and ask me anything you want to ask me. And so we did that, and a bunch of people called in. Nobody has shared with me what the questions are, so I'm going to hear these for the first time and try to come up with some sort of cogent answer. So anyway, that's the setup. Let's go with the first call. Josh, I'm looking at you. Please enter your password. First saved message. Hi, Dan. Um, what I'm wondering is I've kind of fallen off the meditation bandwagon, um, and I'm looking for something, a way to like motivate me to get back into it because I'm already feeling good and I'm happy, but I know that I could be happier, and I know that meditation still has so many good benefits. So if you have any advice for how to kind of get back on the bandwagon, that would be much appreciated. All right. Well, thank you for that. I have a I have a lot to say about this. 
Falling off the wagon is not a problem. Everybody does it. Um, we are, uh, I've been saying this on the podcast in recent weeks, so apologies if you've heard me say this, but evolution did not leave us with a mind that is well equipped for um, creating long-term healthy habits. It left us with a mind that was really good at avoiding dangerous stuff like saber-toothed tigers and and finding rewarding things like good food and sexual partners. Why? Because evolution didn't care about our long-term health. It cared about like getting our genes into the, into future generations. Uh, so we are not wired for successful adoption, easy, successful adoption of uh, long-term healthy habits. So you have to go into the, uh, the establishing of a habit like meditation with the idea that you're going to start and stop and start and stop or start and fail and and start again. And you have to be okay with that. Uh, it's going to be a process of experimentation, figuring out the way to anchor the habit into your life in a way that really works for you. Um, and it's not unlike the practice of meditation. The practice of meditation is, generally speaking, there are all kinds of meditation, but generally speaking, the kind of meditation that I Promote mindfulness meditation involves sitting in a chair and then you or, or on the ground cross-legged if you're limber enough, unlike me, and you close your eyes and bring your full attention to the feeling of your breath coming in and going out. And then immediately you're going to get totally distracted. And the whole goal is just to notice when you become distracted, when you've quote unquote failed, which is not actually a failure. And I'll have more to say about that later um, to notice when you've quote unquote failed and to start again and again and again. And that same spirit should be brought not only to the doing of meditation, but to the establishing of a meditation habit. It's totally fine if you start and fail and start again. That is the whole game is just to like notice that um, you miss the benefits that were accruing to you from doing this thing and then start again. And so back to what the caller said, he feels happy. His life is fine. Um, everything's good. Uh, but he knows he could be happier if he was meditating. Well, that's why I think actually falling off the off the wagon can be a good thing because it brings into starker relief the fact that things could be better if you were doing this thing for yourself for a couple minutes a day. And so I actually I think everything I heard in that voicemail indicates to me that that uh, you, sir, are ripe for reestablishing a meditation habit because you you see uh, the benefits, the benefits. Forget willpower. Willpower is a really hard way to establish um, uh, any habit because willpower is this incredibly ephemeral inner resource. It goes away. It evaporates really quickly. What you want to do is identify the benefits, which is you feel better and to use the benefits to pull you forward. So I would say just in terms of practical advice for reestablishing a habit, set up reasonably low bar, maybe one minute a day. We've got a bunch of one-minute meditations, uh, many of them free, on the 10% Happier app. You can go check those out. One minute a day uh, that you're going to do it daily-ish, not every day, but most days. And if and I, we found that if you set the bar that low, hey, I'm going to do one minute most days, that's a really good way to get people to actually do the thing. All right. I survived the first call. Josh, number two. What's up, Dan? Huge fan of the show. You've been huge in uh, keeping my enthusiasm going for meditation over the past uh, year and a half now, probably. I, I think I found out about the show right when it started. My question is, uh, I've been really good about, you know, staying on my more or less daily meditation routine, and now I feel like the next big step is uh, going on a retreat. But all these retreats are crazy expensive and kind of intimidating because I don't know which ones are going to be, you know, worth the money. I know the Insight Meditation Society and the ones that you mentioned frequently are probably the best. But if I can't afford it, I mean, what's a good way to go sit silently for 10 days and get something out of it? I'd really appreciate an answer. Thanks. 
I really appreciate the question. A lot to say about that one. Um, who I just got back actually uh, from uh, a ten day meditation retreat uh, at the Insight Meditation Society, which is in in central Massachusetts, in Barrie, Massachusetts. Beautiful up there. Um, but dude, meditation retreats are arduous. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, I want to be clear that you don't. You are not a failed meditator. You're not a JV meditator if you don't want to do a meditation retreat. It's totally fine. It is not a must. The first time I did a meditation retreat was when I was in the middle of writing 10% Happier and I needed some stuff to write about. That's why I did it. So just relieve yourself of the notion that somehow you need to do a retreat. That being said, I think retreats are incredible. They're really hard, uh, at least for me. I really struggle with it's not the not talking, by the way, that's the problem for me. I don't, I don't, I'm actually, I have a pretty pronounced antisocial streak. It's the meditating all day long. Um, and, you know, and the, even when you're not meditating, uh, at least on the retreats that, that I've been on, you know, you're moving in slow motion because everything should be meditative. Um, and you're not checking your phone and there's, there's no like dopamine hits in the form of, you know, um, uh, social media or um, uh, Netflix. So uh, it it is a radical change from the way we lead our lives in the modern world. But I can tell you, especially since the benefits of my last retreat are still very much fresh with me, that this is a really, really productive and healthy thing to do. It can sound insane to go to the middle of nowhere, ditch your phone and move in slow motion and in silence for 10 days at a time. And by the way, they do shorter ones like two, three, five, seven days. But I was doing a 10-day one. They also have a three-month one. So that, that sounds completely insane. But there's a way in which several days in, you realize it's the sanest thing you could do because you're not being led around by a string. That the, the, all, the ben, all the benefits of basic meditation, what's the biggest benefit? The Three of the biggest benefits of Basic meditation, one, is it makes you calmer. Two, is it increases your focus. And three, the biggest one is you really see this thunderously obvious thing, which is you have a mind and are thinking. And that when you're unaware of the fact that you have a mind and are thinking thoughts all the time, that those thoughts own you and that most of them are negative and repetitive and self-centered. And um, and so re- those basic benefits come into, you know, such become so blazingly obvious and um, and powerfully understood in the context of a retreat that for me, it's a really powerful thing to do. Um, so those are some thoughts on retreats generally. But to answer the caller's question about cost, look, um, it does cost money to go on a retreat. Um, the two places that I have gone on retreat are IMS, the Insight Meditation Society, and its sister organization, which is out on the West Coast, um, in Marin County, uh, north of San Francisco, called Spirit Rock, which I know sounds like, as I, I've, I've written, Fraggle Rock with a bunch of, you know, crystal-wielding um, Muppets. Um, but whatever, get over it. Uh, it's still both, – both of these places are incredibly beautiful. The food is good. The teachers are excellent. And – and here's where it comes to cost. They offer financial aid for students who can't afford – the the tuition for the courses so you can inquire about financial aid and they take very seriously uh, making the the retreat experience um accessible to anyone and everyone whatever your background is 
whatever your sexual identity is, whatever your racial um, and ethnic background is, whatever your economic means, there are ways you can actually do a little bit of work. They have um, these work programs where you do a little bit of extra work. We, anybody who's on retreat, you get what's called a yogi job where you like clean pots or something like that. But they'll maybe give you a little extra work, I believe, um, as a way to to defray the cost. But financial aid is absolutely available. So I, I strongly recommend checking it out. And again, for those of you who are just utterly repelled by the idea of going on a retreat, don't worry about it. All right, this next one, this next call is from Aggie. Here we go. My question to you is, how do I preemptively stop my talking mind, as they call it in meditation? I actually like to call her my evil twin, but she will literally come into a conversation like she puts duct tape on my mouth, takes over the whole conversation, and then later, after having time to reflect about what an idiot I sounded like during that conversation, she's like in the corner giggling at me because she had so much fun doing it. So I meditate. I do mindfulness. I want to know how do I stop that evil twin from just taking over whenever she feels like it. Love to hear your podcast and look forward to more. Thanks so much. Thank you, Aggie. Okay, so caveat before I answer. I am not a meditation teacher. I am a, a devoted meditator and I write about it, so I don't like I don't know nothing, but I, I as I often say, this is like getting a medical procedure performed on you by somebody who's read Grey's Anatomy um, uh, or watched Grey's Anatomy or read the actual Grey's Anatomy book. Anyway, so that caveat being issued, um, uh, I would maybe reframe it a little bit that you don't need to preemptively stop the voice. And in fact, anything you're trying to stop internally, in my experience, is a fool's errand. You can't um, at least especially, for, you know, at the deep end of the pool meditatively, they talk about uprooting all difficult emotions. And and that may be possible. But for those of us civilians, rank and file meditators, I think the best way is not to think about ending all of the uh, voices in your head that you don't like. It's about having a different relationship to them so that when your evil twin, and by the way, I, I used to kind of think it was cheesy to name your inner neurotic programs, but now I think it, it's a good way to, in, in some ways, depersonalize them so you're not taking them so seriously. So when your evil twin comes up in the middle of a conversation with another human being, I think what meditation really helps you do is to see that it is happening, not to stop it from happening, but to see, to get better and better at seeing that the evil twin is there and giving you terrible advice right now and making you say something really stupid that you will later regret and that the regretting will be done in the voice of the evil twin. All really, for uh, for those of us sort of beginner meditators, it's about getting better and better at seeing that it is happening and then not being owned by the process, not, you know, seeing that it's happening, letting the voice play itself out. Don't get hostile toward it. Just notice that it's there. Let her say her thing and then move on uh, and refocus on what's happening right now. Because as long as you're focused on what's happening right now, as long as you're truly mindful of whatever's happening right now, there is no place for the ego. The ego has no can find no foothold in those moments. So all you have to do is notice when you're in the middle of a discussion that the evil voice has uh, crept in, carried you away, and given you a terrible idea. Now, easier said than done, um, and that's why you know ten percent happier. Um, the, the goal here is not perfection. The goal here is marginal improvement over time. So your formal practice will help you get better at and better at seeing 
your internal processes so that you can apply them in the moment in real life when you're having discussions that you may or may not later regret. So give yourself a break. Don't expect that you're going to eradicate your evil twin. Just set the goal of doing a better and better job over time of having a more supple relationship with the aforementioned twin. And then give yourself a break when even after you set that goal, you fail because you will. Um, I meditate a, a, a lot and I have been for nine years, which is nothing compared to you know many great teachers, but it's, it's not nothing uh, overall. And I still say stupid stuff all the time. I mean, my wife was on the podcast last week. Go back and listen to that. I mean, she uh, there are examples abound of me doing and saying dumb things. I just think that over time I've gotten better at seeing when my ego swoops in and gives me a bad idea and not obeying it. And... Uh, I've gotten better at knowing when I've messed up and making a quicker um, and more heartfelt apology. Thank you, Aggie. What's up, Dan? Big fan of your your work, man. Um, College student, pretty young. I'm 20. And the college life is pretty damn stressful, so I turned to meditation. A good question I had was, I've been locked in on um, meditating, and it's just awkward, man. Like, how do I phrase or explain myself to people who don't really understand what that is. Thanks for your work, man. That's such a good question. You know, even I write about this in, 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 uh, in the new book, um, when in, in the new book, we, we do sort of a taxonomy, uh, of all the various obstacles that people face when, uh, they're contemplating starting a meditation habit. And one of the, one of the fears, uh, that we tackle is meditation is going to make me look weird. And look, I'm not. I'm not gonna lie to you. I think. I think the stigma around meditation has vastly diminished. Just as a brief anecdote, um, I went back to my alma mater, Colby College in Waterville, Maine, a couple of years ago. They asked me to come back to give a speech about meditation, and I suspected that nobody would be there. But it, like the room was packed. It was. It was standing room only. I later found out that they were getting credit for coming to the class. That's probably why it was it was packed. But anyway, it was packed. And at the end of my shtick, people got up and, and made comments or asked questions. And one, this is a really good looking dude, got up. It was a jock. He looked like a football player. He might have been a football player. And he announced that he was the president of the Colby College Mindfulness Club and that they practiced every Wednesday or whatever in the chapel. And I just, for me, that was a huge moment of realizing, oh, okay, this thing that I was so embarrassed of for so long um, is actually this, the stigma is, is going away in some quarters. And that's, I think, largely because meditation has been adopted by executives and people in the military and entertainers, et cetera, et cetera. That being said, the stigma still does exist in many places. And even for me, um, you know, we have a meditation room at ABC News, and I say this in the new book, um, I sometimes worry about going there or being seen walking out of there. It's like bumping into somebody in the waiting room at the proctologist. You know, it's just somehow still slightly embarrassing. I don't know why that is, even after having written two books on the subject. So I get it. I understand why if you're in your dorm room or wherever you are uh, meditating and somebody walks in on you, it feels weird. So I think there are a couple ways to handle this. One is, you know, if, if people are making fun of you, you can... You can point to all of the really successful aspirational figures like the Chicago Cubs, Novak Djokovic, 50 Cent, Lena Dunham, Katy Perry, and say, hey, these guys are doing it. I mean, it can't be that bad. Um, it kind of reminds me uh, a little of how I have dealt historically with people making fun of me for owning and loving cats. 
because people make fun of guys who own and love cats for some reason. And um, I point to um, avatars of machismo who also own and love cats like, you know, uh, Vito Corleone and Winston Churchill and Dr. Evil. Uh, so I think that just pointing to aspirational figures who meditate is a is a one way to take the edge off. The other way is to talk about the science. Look, you know, we're living in a competitive world. This is a good way to get an edge, to be calmer, to have more focus, to be less emotionally reactive, to be not for nothing, com- more compassionate, which uh, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that people who are more compassionate are, are not only more popular, but also more successful and happier, not for nothing. Um so I think that's the other thing to talk about. And the third thing is the more you meditate, the more you the more you arrange this daily-ish collision with the voice in your head, the more insane – the more you see that you are insane and are able to um, surf that insanity more in a more uh, successful fashion, uh, the less you may care what other people think about you. And that is the real fruit. Hi, Dan. This is Katie. I'm calling from Maine, and I listen to your podcast every morning. It's the best way to start the day. I'm pretty new to meditation, but um, maybe in the past two years, but still working on that practice. But I am a teacher, and I'm always looking for ways to support students with their social, emotional needs, regulation, everything around it, because it's a huge problem. And I teach at the elementary level. I would love to hear somebody speak on education and supporting students um, with mindfulness practices. So so thank you for all that you do, and I look forward to your new book. Thank you. Shout out to Maine, where not only did I – that's where I went to college, but I also uh, spent the first four or five years of my TV career in, in Bangor and then Portland. So lots of love for Maine. Um, also lots of love for teachers. Uh, it's a really hard job, and you don't get paid enough. Um I am. I want to admit, um, I am not an expert in how to teach meditation uh, to children, and, f- and I have a three-year-old, and I plan on becoming an expert and probably writing a whole book about how to teach meditation uh, to kids at some point. But here's what I do know. If you look at the research, from what I've seen, it appears to work, not only in boosting uh, test scores, um, but improving behavior, and um, it, it seems to work quite well on the parts of the brain that have to do with attention regulation, so focus. And um, there was one study done by my friend Richie Davidson at the University of Wisconsin where they taught compassion meditation to preschoolers, and the preschoolers who were taught the practice were more likely to give their stickers away to kids they didn't know which having a three-year-old uh, I now know is a really big deal, giving away your stickers, because my kid doesn't share it with anybody, and not even his daddy, uh, especially not his daddy. So um, I do think it's a really good idea. I also think it's a really bad idea to look for me to be the source of expertise on it, because I haven't yet done a, 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 my uh, homework, to use a appropriate term in this context. However, let me give you this resource, Mindful Schools, based out of San Francisco. It's a nonprofit group. They train teachers to teach meditation in the classroom to their students. Um, and uh, I've had a little bit of exposure to them. I really like them. They seem to be doing really good work. I would check them out. I work for a 22,000-person architectural and engineering firm, and I've been thinking of ways of how I can possibly bring mindfulness activities or uh, maybe mindfulness rooms or whatnot uh, to, you know, this, this corporate environment. 
and was wondering if you guys had any ideas, programs, uh, places I could go and uh, talk to about, you know, how to entice and introduce this to a large corporate setting. Uh, thanks. So first of all, I would say awesome. It's great that you're into it and that you want to spread it. Um, second, I would say proceed carefully. Um, I have learned, and go back and listen to my podcast with my wife, I have learned the hard way that proselytizing uh, about meditation to anyone, but especially in one's home, is a risky thing to do. I often talk about the cartoon that ran in The New Yorker as two women eating lunch, and one says to the other, I've been gluten-free for a week, and I'm already annoying. Um, And the same thing is true with meditation. It can be very annoying to sort of to talk about it. My rule has been I won't talk about it to anybody unless they ask me or put a microphone on me, as is the current situation. Um, That being said, I think it can really have positive impact in a workplace. And so the trick, in my opinion, is to offer it up very gently to say, here it is. It's available go for it, but it's not an expectation that you do it. That seems to be the best way to do it. In terms of finding resources to organize it within the corporation, uh, again, I'm at the edge of my expertise here. If if you're not the CEO or the head of HR and, and don't have the, you know, the power to just make it happen, I would go talk to HR to see if you can get them on board. But another resource that might be useful is, I believe I'm saying this correctly, the Institute for Mindful Leadership, which is run by a woman named Janice Martirano, who was actually a a character in my first book. Uh, She used to work at General Mills, where she was a high-powered corporate attorney and got into meditation and was able to kind of spread the practice virally through the C-suite at General Mills in Minnetonka, Minnesota. And now she lives in New Jersey, I believe, where she's got this Institute for Mindful Leadership where she teaches leaders how to uh, meditate and also, I believe, how to uh, spread the practice within their own corporate environment. So that's something to check out. Um, But if you don't feel like checking that out, I, I think just going to talk to HR and crafting a plan to introduce it in a way that makes it attractive but not um, mandatory. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings 
on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home. And I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff. But uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good-looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash happier. Hey, Dan, this is Cindy from Cleveland, formerly a Bostonian. I was calling to see if you thought your wife would ever take up meditation within the next couple of years. My husband and I um, both started as a result of your book. He was the first one to pick it up. And he started meditating, then I started meditating. We both kind of gone off and on until probably the last year. And now we both meditate regularly. And I have to say, it really has been just a compliment to our marriage. And I can always tell when he's meditating, and I think he can tell when I'm meditating, we get along so much better when we're both doing it. And with five kids in the house, we need a lot of meditation. <laughs> Love your podcast and everything you're doing, and um, keep it up. Cindy, thank you very much. Um... Five kids. Wow. Uh, and it's like, <laughs> I can imagine you coming home from work, putting your hand on the door like a fireman, you know, to see how hot it is. Yeah. So as just me- as I just mentioned in the in the answer to the preceding question, it's really tricky to introduce this to a spouse. I, I definitely recommend you go back and listen to the um, podcast I did with my wife because she really gives it to me about, the, about how uh, annoying I was when I started meditating nine years ago and started lecturing her about how she too should start meditating, which basically guaranteed that she wouldn't ever do it. She has, however, in the course of writing Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, I introduced her to my writing partner, co-author Jeff Warren, this amazing meditation teacher who uh, was able to really get under the hood and figure out what was stopping her from doing it. Uh, One of the obstacles was she lives with me, which was a problem continues to be a problem for her on lots of levels. That's a side discussion. Um, so Jeff uh, really helped reframe it for her and um, and come up with a practice that works in her life, and she continues to do it. I think she falls off the wagon once in a while, but um, uh, has found that it's uh, created a lot of benefit for her. And I would say that it wasn't obvious to me that she was meditating. There were many months where she was meditating and I didn't have the guts to ask her whether she was meditating. So the way we set up the book was we went and interviewed all these people to see you know, if we could help them start a meditation habit. And then we gave them like five months. And then at the end of the five months, we went back and asked people, OK, are you doing it? And um, I, when it came time to ask Bianca, I didn't want to do it because I thought that she would take my head off. But I finally did ask her. She said she was doing it and that she was glad I asked because she wanted credit. But I didn't know she was doing it. And I think that speaks uh, really to the fact that we have a really good relationship. That's not to say that uh, the relationship that uh, uh, the, the last caller has with her husband is in any way suboptimal. They may have more obstacles in their way having five kids and we only have one. But we have a really good relationship baseline and she's really cool. So um, I, I've never 
you know, to me, it's not like I, I wanted her to have meditation because I thought it would reduce her the stress of her work life. Uh, she's a doctor. Um, but I wasn't like I wanted her to have meditation because then she would somehow stop being mean to me because she's not mean to me ever or anything like that. So but knowing that she has a meditation practice gives me it's while I don't think it's somehow magically transformed our relationship, it's just I'm happy to know that it's helpful for her in managing all of the various difficulties in her life. And again, I, I commend last week's podcast to you um, because she's got a really busy life and has had, you know, breast cancer and has had a, a kid who's had some intermittent health and sleep problems and she's got some uh, stuff in her family and she's got a husband who works too much. And so she's got plenty of reasons to have emotions, strong emotions, difficult emotions. And, and I'm, I'm just happy to know that she has this practice as a way to help managing it. So thanks for that call. Hi, Dan. Uh, Ari from Hartford, Connecticut. Um, I just took an MBSR course, and that is where my question starts. Um, in the course, we have uh, noticed that our meditation sessions are much more focused, and there's a general sense of well-being uh, in the group in, in comparison to meditating uh, by ourselves at home. And so my question is, is there any evidence to say that uh, both from a neuroimaging perspective or from a focused perspective, that meditating in a group allows for a, a better, more focused meditation in general than, than by oneself. Thanks a lot, Dan, and uh, keep it up. Uh, you're doing great work. Thank you. Thank you, Ari. Appreciate it. Uh, that's a great question. Let me just explain to everybody what MBSR is. So he's taking, he said, a, an MBSR course. That's Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. Uh, that is a meditation, an eight-week meditation course that was um, developed by um, John Kabat-Zinn, who's a former guest on this podcast. He's a MIT microbiologist who was on a meditation retreat at the aforementioned Insight Meditation Society in Central Mass and had this vision back in the 70s or 80s. And the vision was, yeah, this meditation is really good for people. We should make it secular. We should take it out of a Buddhist context and make a sort of a, a formalized protocol, eight-week protocol for teaching it. He started teaching it in hospital settings, and then scientists started measuring what it did to people and their brains and, and their immune systems and their blood pressure, and that is what gave us the current mindfulness revolution. So MBSR is a very, very, very important thing and a cool thing, and people get a, a lot out of it. So, But, but to your question— uh, to my knowledge, there have been no studies about what meditating in a group does to the quality of meditation or to the level of impact that meditation may have on one's brain or body. Uh, however, there is an enormous amount of anecdotal evidence to suggest that many people get a lot out of sitting in groups, that there is a real power to sitting in a room with other people who are doing it. And in fact, since my new book is all about helping people adopt a practice, some people, for some people, being part of a group is actually a great way to cement the habit. One, because if you're part of a group, either at a local meditation center uh, where you meditate with other people and they expect you to show up, or you create a group on your own, a little sitting group, which a lot of people all over the country, all over the world do, then you, you've there's a, there's an element of social cohesion and also you're obliged to other people to show up and to do the thing. And that can really uh, put the adoption, uh, can make the adoption more successful for some people. And then, you know, just being in the room with other people who are doing it, um, I don't know if there's any scientific explanation for this, but a lot of people feel that it, it has an 
HOV lane effect to it, that it's just like it's more powerful when you're doing it in the room with other people. I'm not sure that I can say that for myself. I, I sense the power of it. But in this last retreat I did up at uh, IMS, a lot of it I was sitting alone in my room, and um, those were my most powerful uh, sits. So for some reason, I often get – I feel weird sitting with other people. Um, if I have to swallow or cough, and then I get in my head that I have to swallow and cough even more, and then I'm the guy ruining everybody's meditation, blah, blah, blah. So, so sometimes my antisocial spirit comes out in this context. But one other thing I'd say about the benefit of sitting in a group or taking a class is – and this I found to be powerfully true, is that there's an enormous benefit to being friends with other people who are doing this practice. Um, I don't, um, it's, I'm, it's a little weird that I'm now a guy who will once in a while quote the Buddha, but here I go. There's a great story from uh, the Buddhist scriptures where his right-hand man, Ananda, uh, comes to the Buddha after having had a really interesting conversation with some fellow meditators, and he comments to the Buddha that that having good friends is half the holy life. And by holy, I think they just mean good life. Um, and the Buddha's like, no, 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 it's the whole thing. And uh, I think there's really something to that, that being around people who are um, endeavoring to apply meditative principles in their lives, um, who are using it to be better at everything they do from their work to their relationships, can uh, normalize the thing, can up your game, uh, supply a sort of positive peer pressure. And so I highly recommend that. If you're, even if you don't feel like I'm not part of, I don't go sit at a meditation center once a week or anything like that, but I do make it a big priority to have people in my life who are practicing. And those friendships feel supercharged to me. Maybe it's because there is much more authenticity that can emerge when you're not wholly owned by the voice in your head. Maybe it's also that this is just such a, powerful area of interest that when you share it with somebody, it just puts the friendship at a new level. But um, I really do think there's a lot to it. Let me just, well, this is not a question coming in from a, a caller, but before we get to the next call, uh, one I would say the most common question I get, which is somehow it's not coming in on the calls today, that's probably because uh, people who listen to this podcast um, have kind of sorted this out maybe in their own heads. But the most common question I get is, how do you find time to do this? And, you know, how much time do I need to be doing it in order to make a difference? Um, and uh, I have good news and even better news. The good news is I think five to ten minutes a day is a great habit. And from what I can tell from looking at the – from talking to neuroscientists, it should be – that should be enough to derive many of the advertised benefits. The even better news is if you don't have five to ten minutes a day, uh, I think one minute counts. And I don't think you have to do it every day. I think you can shoot for daily-ish um, and so one minute, uh, uh, is all it takes. I mean, actually it just takes one second to wake up from whatever trance you're walking around in and to, to wake up from the autopilot, which governs most of our lives. So I think if you can engineer a collision with the voice in your head over the course of one minute, most days, um, then you're well onto something. And by the way, once that habit is established, you can scale up. Um, and experiment with going to 5, 10, 20, whatever it is you think is the best dosage for you. Ultimately, this is, and I know this is, it may sound like a cop but it is an individual thing. And so you got to figure out for yourself what works. Unsolicited, but I suspect maybe it'll be useful to some people. Uh, here's the next call. 
Hi, Dan. My name is John, and I'm calling from Hawaii. The question I have for you is, as your meditation practice evolves and you gain insights into our daily experience and some of the sufferings that we have or the people around us have, how do you address those sufferings among the people that you care about, your friends and family, when you see them struggling with things in their lives? How do you help them through that? Thank you. John, thank you. Hawaii, I'm jealous. Um, I heard a great thing the other day. I was taping a course. So on the the 10% Happier app, we do. there are two different modes you can be in. You can take a course where it's me and a teacher talking, and you get like a short little video clip of me and the teacher talking, and then it, it rolls right into a guided audio meditation. Or you can just do a guided audio meditation. But some of the most I think the most popular courses we have are with my teacher, Joseph Goldstein. He's the just an amazing human. Um, never been on this podcast, which I am trying to remedy, but he's uh, hard to schedule. But we were teaching, we were um, recording a course with him up in his living room at the, uh, he lives on the grounds of the Insight Meditation Society. So I walked out of retreat and uh, went and shot this course with Joseph. Um, I just love the guy. And he said a great thing. It wasn't, it's not his expression, but it really is apropos, uh, given the question that John asked. Um, a great phrase to have in your head as an attitude toward life is, how can I help? That doesn't mean you need to be Mother Teresa or Gandhi or Nelson Mandela, because that's a really high bar. But if your overall mindset is, how can I help? That is a really practical way to approach the world. And when people have problems around you, it helps you skip over the mode of being overwhelmed, which is where a cul-de-sac in which I think many of us get stuck. We hear, you know, of, of people who have a huge problem and we don't know what to do about it. So we either avoid the person or we, you know, swarm them in ways maybe that makes them uncomfortable or we suffer in some way and make them suffer in, in, as a consequence. But if you just switch right into how can I help, which doesn't mean you know you can solve the problem, but it just puts you in an active mode, which is empowering and to get a little grandiose, ennobling. I find that is a, a, a great shift. And it doesn't mean you're self-righteous or anything like that. It just means that your general attitude is, can I be helpful right now? And I've had some friends of late for a whole bunch of reasons who've had lots of different crises. And I just found that just being in the mode of, hey, is there anything I can do? And often that question, is there anything I can do, is actually maybe not the best person thing to say to somebody who needs it because then that puts them in a situation of, of having to dream something up. But just my inner mindset is, how can I help? And just evaluating their situation from a distance and doing the things uh, that I think could be useful. And most of that, frankly, is just showing up. Uh, And that sounds super cliche and uh, cliches become cliches for a reason, usually because they're true. And um, uh, showing up is huge. Um, I had a friend who had a horrible, horrible thing happen to him and his family a couple months ago, and um, I didn't want to do it. But I went and just went to his apartment and sat there with some other people um, and witnessed some really painful things. And it was contrary to all of my sort of initial instincts. 
but it was really appreciated. And I think it didn't solve the problem. It didn't make the situation go away, but it was helpful. And that's the best you can ask for when people around you are suffering. So that's what I got. Hi, Dan. Questions about the podcast. Number one is uh, you were threatening to get Joseph on the podcast for quite a while. Uh, what's the deal with that? Also, if you get him on the podcast, can you also get Sam Harris to join him? One of my favorite things in life is listening to Joseph Goldstein giggle. And uh, the one person in the world who seems to be able to get him giggle the most is uh, Sam Harris. So if you could get them together in a room, I think that'd be cool. Your book has been great. I've bought it for many friends and family, and it's been very helpful. Take care. Thank you. Okay, so I've been bugging Joseph to come on this podcast for as long as this podcast has existed. He lives in central Massachusetts um, and doesn't come down to New York City that often. And when he does, I think I can say this about Joseph without him getting angry at me. Joseph is probably the happiest person I know in an unaffected way. I mean, he doesn't come off as forcing it or pretending or anything like that. He doesn't come off as super spiritual or creamy or, you know, he's very, he's, he keeps it real. But he seems really happy, and I think he is really happy. But he does not like, and he makes this joke all the time, so I don't think I'm speaking out of school. He doesn't like, like working that hard. He's, he's always joking about how he wants things to be made as easy as possible. So on the app, for example, we we think a lot about how not to work him too hard because then if we make things fun and easy for him, like shooting a course in his living room as opposed to making him travel, he's happier um, and we get the best stuff out of him. And so on the podcast, for example, he was here just this past weekend, a couple of days before we're taping this podcast, and I asked him, come on, let's do a podcast. And he it just like it would have made his day too busy, and I know that would have made him unhappy. He would have done it for me, but I know it would have made him unhappy, so I relented. So I'm on it. I'm going to get Joseph on this podcast, but I want to do it in a way where he's happy at the time, and you get to hear plenty of him giggle. I can assure you that, especially if you watch the video content on the 10% Happier app, that um, not to compete with Sam, but I can elicit plenty of giggles with Joseph. You will hear them when he comes on. That being said, Sam Harris, who is the guy who introduced me to Joseph, um, and if you don't know Sam, he's the host of the very, very popular Waking Up podcast. He's written a bunch of amazing books, but in this context, the most relevant one is called Waking Up, which I highly, highly, highly recommend. Um, and Sam is a dear friend and just an awesome guy. Sam and Joseph have done two, maybe three, but two podcasts on Sam's podcast in in, in which they basically have like two hour long arguments, uh, which are hilarious. And there's a lot of giggling. I those are really worth listening to. So I'm not going to share Joseph on my podcast with Sam, so I'm not doing that. But I do recommend that you uh, go listen to the podcast that they have done. Sam was on episode 71 on this show, by the way, if you want to go back and listen to that. And by the way, the only reason why Sam has been able to get Joseph on twice is because Joseph was staying at his house on both of those occasions. And all they had to do was go to the basement. So just trust me, I'm, I'm working on this and, and we'll, we'll, we'll get it done. Hey, Dan. I am 61 years old. I spent 50 years in the music business playing drums. My first question is why you waited so long to say that you play drums. That's the first I heard about it and uh, wanted to hear uh, more about how meditation can help a musician. That's Jimmy. Jimmy, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I've been playing the drums since I was 10. I still suck, uh, which is remarkable because I'm 46. Uh, so that's a lot of time of sucking. Um I even have a drum set in my office, but I'm embarrassed. It's an electronic drum set, but I'm embarrassed to admit that it's really not set up properly and I don't play it. And the only person who does is 
my son who gets on there and slams it with some sticks and then jumps off and breaks other stuff. Um, but, you know, it really makes me happy to play, and I play on my, you know, hands and knees all the time. Um, and I am feeling stupid as I sit here for not having set up the drum set in my office because I know it would make me really happy. And I think there is, you know, there is a pretty deep connection between music and meditation because what is happening when you're playing music, when you're in that flow, in the zone of playing music, you know, the discursive chatter in your head vastly diminishes unless you get self-conscious and then screw up. But you are right there. You're not off thinking about the past, thinking about the future. You're right there in the song. And, you know, in the times in my adult life when I've, you know, there, there have been brief periods of time where I've kind of started bands with friends where we would play at jam and rehearsal spaces in, in New York City. But some of the happiest moments. Um, so, again, I continue to feel stupid for not doing more of this. Um, and in the course of uh, – this didn't make it into the book, but in the course of – reporting meditation for fidgety skeptics we actually interviewed a famous ja uh, new orleans jazz drummer um who talked very powerfully about um the nexus uh the overlap between meditation and music and i absolutely think there's a lot there for sure this is the last one so i feel like i've gotten away entirely unscathed so unless this one is really weird and or embarrassing and I'm just going to call this, I'm, this is like a drop the mic win. But here we go. Might the mindfulness community have more impact by focusing on compassion? Realize, of course, that it's a tougher sell up front. But my experience has been if we can get people to try it, uh, they seem to get more bang for the bucks. So the question, in essence, for you or uh, any of your guests would be, why not lead with compassion? Thanks. Love your podcast. Huge fan. Thank you. Excellent question. Something I've spent some time thinking about. So let me just define terms for people uh, in case you don't know the difference between, which, by the way, is totally fine, uh, if you don't know the difference between mindfulness meditation and compassion meditation, because they are two techniques that are often taught in tandem, um, but they're not the exact same thing. So m basic mindfulness meditation is you sit and watch your breath come and go, and then when you get distracted, you start again. And the value of that is uh, one of the big benefits is mindfulness, which is every time you get distracted, you're, you're getting this big drinking from the fire hose uh, view of how crazy you are, and you get to see that it's just a thought, and you can let it go and start again. And so the you know one of the many benefits is that you aren't so owned by the voice in your head. Compassion meditation is actually the the wise use of thoughts in order to develop compassion. So you, it sounds very annoying, this practice, and in fact, it is very annoying, especially at the beginning. You sit uh, and uh, systematically envision people, like you start usually start with yourself, uh, and you send, you say phrases in your mind, like, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you live with ease, may you be safe and protected from harm, and then you move from yourself to a benefactor, some, you know, uh, somebody who's protected you and, and uh, benefited you through your life, a dear friend, can even be a pet, um, uh, a neutral person, somebody who you see every day but maybe ignore, a difficult person, and then everyone, all beings. Um, and so, like I said, I, this is sort of the systematic cultivation of sap. It, can, it, it, it sounds annoying and it is annoying, but... 
the um, science seems to suggest that it works, that it uh, can have all sorts of health benefits and change people's behavior. And again, as I said before, the more compassion you have, the more friendliness you have, the, the you uh, are more likely to be popular and healthy and successful. Um, and so why not lead with this? Well, I've thought a lot about that. Um, and I, I, in fact, am, I have, uh, this podcast is all about promoting meditation for fidgety skeptics, which is the new book. But um, the book that I'm going to write after that is I tentatively entitled 10% Nicer. And um, I feel strongly that we need to do for compassion what has been done for mindfulness, which is to make it attractive to all sorts of skeptics, to make it an aspirational thing. And the way to do that, in my view, what has what has helped me adopt compassion, which can seem really treacly and annoying is uh, to make it uh, appeal to my uh, selfish interests, which seem never to go away. And if you can make the case that there's all sorts of science that suggests that uh, compassionate, uh, kind people are uh, more successful and happier and healthier, then I think more people are likely to do it. I don't know, though, at the end of the day, which one to lead with. Uh, and that's a really good question because I think mindfulness is incredibly important too. And the skills that you develop in mindfulness meditation are really useful when doing compassion meditation. And the reverse is also true. So I don't know. I mean, for me, I've, I've just, I've just done them both uh, for years. Um, so I think they're complementary practices. They historically have been taught together and meant to be done in conjunction. So maybe that's the answer. Just lead with both of them instead of just putting all the emphasis on mindfulness. I, you know, I have a Google alert for mindfulness and meditation, and I get all sorts of headlines. I, I see all sorts of crazy headlines about, you know, how mindfulness can help you sell more furniture. There was a there was an article in like a furniture industry website about how mindfulness can help you sell more furniture. And I was thinking the big win would be when that headline is how compassion can help you sell more furniture because I think it can. I think it can help you do almost everything in your life better. Great question. It's still a, a subject that I'm learning more about, and hopefully I'll have a whole shtick about it in 12 to 18 months when or if I finish the book. All right, I'm looking at Josh and Lauren. You guys really spared me. I assume there were some really weird ones in there that, yes, okay, they're saying yes, that, that you did not share with me. That doesn't mean if we didn't use yours that yours was weird, by the way. It just meant that we only had a, a limited amount of time. Uh, so we'll do this undoubtedly again because I think it was really cool. Um, and, but let us know. Hit, hit, hit me up on Twitter and let me know if you like this format because well, if you do, then we'll try to sneak it in uh, every once in a while. I've been making fun of Josh and Lauren, but I do want to say as we end the year here that this show would not be possible without the two of you. This show would not be possible. You guys work incredibly hard to make this show possible. Josh edits all the audio and posts it on all the places where you listen to it. Lauren books the guests and is incredibly detail-oriented in chasing down these people um, who I want to get on the show. And she comes up with ideas for getting people on the show. And again, they came up with the idea for this show. So I am incredibly grateful to both of you for all of your hard work. And incredibly grateful to everybody who listens to the show. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. So please keep listening. Please keep rating us and reviewing us and putting us on social media or giving us ideas on social media because we do take those. And Happy New Year, everybody. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. 
Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.